0: Thank you you for the invitation to be here. Um, I'm going to speak from the podium just because it's a little bit easier with the PowerPoints to have the computer in front of me, so apologies to those who who may need to turn around. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Professor Ridgewell for her warm welcome and uh, hosting of me. Um, It's It's a real pleasure to be here in Oxford, only the second time I've been to Oxford, so it's great to be here. So, um, my title of my talk is Between Optimism and Pessimism, and I was inspired um, by, in fact, by a rather old article. Um, in, um, about 70 years ago, Professor Joseph Kuntz wrote in the American Journal of International Law about the tendency for views of international law uh, to swing between utopian ideals, that the international law is, is the, the guidance for international relations, and deep pessimism. Um, thinking that international law has no influence on international relations. Um, I think most international lawyers are, by necessity, optimists about the role of international law and its utility in promoting socially good outcomes, but sometimes reality can get in the way and make this optimism rather difficult to maintain. Um, And I have to say that my progress in relation to the BBNJ tends to swing between optimism and pessimism uh, a little bit, depending on where things are at and uh, what issue I'm talking about. So the law of the sea isn't immune, of course, from swings of optimism and pessimism, although um, it should be said that since 1982, the law of the sea convention has undergone a pretty stable period um, where the convention is seen as an example of effective international lawmaking. It is... A system of very complex rules of balancing of interests between parties um, and establishing um, a set of legal principles that have contributed by and large, there are exceptions, to stability in the international community. Now, however, we are immersed in a debate around a new treaty uh, for the protection of marine biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, uh, known informally as the BBNJ. Uh, And so today what I want to do is essentially three things. I want to provide a background to the treaty, uh, both why it's necessary and how it's developed. I want to then give you an overview of the main issues in the negotiations and talk about some of the sticking points in those negotiations. And I want to finish by talking about the need to keep the focus on an ambitious treaty. Uh, And I'll explain some of the problems that we're trying to resolve, and you'll see that um, ambition is an important aspect for us to maintain. So, without further ado, uh, this is what we're talking about. Um, The high seas, the areas beyond national jurisdiction, and on this map, um, the areas of national jurisdiction are the white areas and the dark blue are the high seas. I'm not sure how scientifically (coughs) accurate it is in all respects, But what it does show is that about 64% of the ocean is in the high seas. Um, And the the ocean, including the deep ocean, is vitally important for a range of reasons. Uh, It absorbs about 90% of the carbon dioxide that's emitted by humans, and it also absorbs a significant amount of the, the rising temperature. So a lot of that is going straight into the oceans and being absorbed by the oceans. Obviously, um, the, the deep sea is a source of food, um, and increasingly we're starting to see developments in terms of deep seabed mining, um, shipping, um, out the number and range of activities by humans is increasing on the high seas, um, even though, of course, uh, a lot of the primary productivity is found closer to the coast, the high seas is still a really important part of um, the oceans. And this is an environment that is under pressure. Uh, This year, the IPBS report on the state of biodiversity found that nature is declining uh, at unprecedented rates in human history, and the rate of species extinction is accelerating, and that applies to the oceans as well as to terrestrial ecosystems. Some statistics include that 33% of marine fish stocks are being harvested at unsustainable levels. Um, they estimated that around 55% of the ocean is, uh, is actively fished, um, which is a considerably, is, is higher than I would have expected. Um, and they're projecting a decrease in net primary production, um, particularly fish stocks, by the end of the century, um, up to 25% decrease in fish biomass, Um, due to climate change as well as overfishing and um, of course the impact on coral reefs uh, of climate change is particularly significant. Um, In the deep ocean we're seeing more and more science about what impact particularly climate change is going to have on the deep ocean Um, and this is a, a paper that came out um, which is essentially trying to pull together estimates about what are going to be the impacts of the deep ocean on climate change. And what it shows is, and it's not equally distributed across across the globe, but that the temperatures in the deep ocean are expected to rise by at least one percent, one degree in by twenty uh, twenty one hundred. Um, one issue that doesn't get a lot of attention is the deoxy- deoxygenisation of the oceans, um, and this is areas where the level of oxygen is, is decreasing uh, for all sorts of different reasons, um, but that's going to have a major impact on um, ecosystems and biodiversity. They're also um, predicting significant impacts from ocean acidification, and that is the result of an increase in dissolved carbon dioxide. So one of the side effects of being a sink for carbon dioxide is that the uh, impact is that um, animals and organisms that rely on calcification, for example, um, are being corroded because the oceans are becoming more acidic. And also that the amount of food dropping from the surface of the ocean to the deep ocean will decrease. Um, In addition, we know that climate change is having an impact on how we manage our fish stocks. And uh, this um, diagram uh, shows that the range of fish are shifting. So in the tropical uh, areas, for example, you would have um, a range of different fish species. Now there are fewer of them and they're, they're more limited in range. And the species that used to be found in the tropics are being found um, at higher and lower latitudes. So, a lot to be pessimistic about, potentially. Um, Nevertheless, both the um, IPCC report and the IPBES report um, did say that all is not lost and... In the IPBS report, they said that if we can achieve transformative change, we can still make a difference. And by that, they meant a fundamental system-wide reorganisation across technological, economic, and social factors. The IPCC emphasised the importance of achieving ecosystem-based approaches, um, renewable resource use, restoration protection, uh, and the reduction of stressors. So that's where the hope lies. And perhaps at the end of my presentation, we can come back and you can tell me whether you think that the BB&J is going to contribute uh, to this transformative change. So, um, I want to now take a step back and talk about why the BB&J process came about. And it came about through growing awareness of problems with the ocean governance frameworks. And I've listed there a number of different problems that were identified both by states and also commentators. Um, And essentially, there's there's multiple reasons why uh, the high seas has struggled in relation to managing activities uh, there. One of the big issues is the fact that we've got a a large number of different organisations that manage sectoral uh, or regional um, matters in the oceans, uh, and there is very little coordination and cooperation among them, and I'll show you some some maps in a moment to illustrate uh, how this is a problem. Another problem is the, the fact that there are activities for which there are no governing institutions, so there's no way for... Uh, new activities to be regulated unless they fit within one of those existing organisations and that is actually linked with the last point which is that um, the law of the sea does not have an institutional framework which can pick up new issues in the way that multilateral environmental agreements for example might be able to do that through the COPs which have um, annual meetings and they can address matters of substance relating to that uh, agreement. That doesn't exist in the Law of the Sea Convention, the meetings of the parties are limited to technical matters and financial matters. Essentially, the the institutions that we do have aren't working very well when it comes to managing biodiversity. Uh, I mentioned some figures around how regional fisheries management organisations um, are partly responsible for the overfishing of some of our fish stocks, and... There's general agreement that although some are better than others, in general, their focus has been on allocation of high seas fish stock resources rather than on the protection of biodiversity as a broader issue. Um, And another issue has been the the inequities between developed and developing countries. Primarily, the activity on the high seas is done by developed or wealthy countries, um, which leads the poorer countries essentially locked out of uh, the wealth, or what they see as the wealth or the opportunities in the high seas. So I'd like to just now show you a few maps that were generated by the Pew organisation, which I think give us a, just a, a quick uh, glimpse of some of these issues. And this first map shows um, a number of different governance organisations with high seas mandates. It doesn't show organisations with global applications such as the International Whaling Commission, the International Seabed Authority, or the International Maritime Organisation. And what you get from that map is a sense perhaps that we're all right. There's plenty of organisations out there that are governing the high seas. Unfortunately, um, in, in reality, there's a lot of overlap, there's a lot of gaps um, and as I said earlier, the coordination between these organisations has generally tended to be relatively poor. Oh, something is Okay, um, this set of, these two maps um, show how Pew has weeded out the organisations that are more focused on biodiversity and conservation mandates, um, and you can see that they're starting to look much patchier. If you go to organisations that can create binding measures for ecosystem management, again, the the map looks a lot sparser. And then finally, if you look at um, whether there are any international organisations who can create legally binding um, conservation measures across multiple areas on the high seas, well, there aren't any. Um, And so I think that illustrates part of the institutional problem that we're facing. I should point out that even if the BBNJ treaty is implemented, we're still not going to have this, um, at least the way that the negotiations are, are going. So um, that's the background uh, or the, the justification, and let me just quickly introduce you to the BBNJ process and I have to apologize on behalf of everybody involved in this process, it essentially uh, requires everyone to speak in acronyms, um, and unfortunately, I think <coughs> it's actually something that international law does a lot anyway. So I just want to make you aware of some of those acronyms as well. So discussions for the BBNJ have been uh, ongoing. They started in an informal ad hoc working group in 2006, um, and it took until 2015 for the UN General Assembly to agree. a preparatory committee, um, not even negotiations, and then it wasn't until the end of 2017 that the General Assembly authorised um, sessions to be held to negotiate a new international legally binding instrument, known as the ILBI, for the conservation and sustainable use of marine biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction, BBNJ. Um, now, we don't, I, the, I, the title of my talk was about the high seas, but we talk about areas beyond national jurisdiction because that includes the deep seabed as well as the high seas. So, technically, it, uh, it applies to areas beyond national jurisdiction. Um, four sessions were authorised by the General Assembly. Now, crucially, the General Assembly Resolution provided for four areas as a package to be negotiated. Um, in the agreement and the the four elements of the package are marine genetic resources, area-based management tools and including marine protected areas, environmental impact assessments, capacity building and the transfer of marine technology, all of which have their own acronyms. And another important aspect and actually one that's tended to dominate the discussions is the requirement that the process and its results should not undermine existing relevant legal instruments and frameworks and relevant global, regional, and sectoral bodies. Okay, So those maps that I just showed you, the instrument must not undermine those. Now, that becomes really crucial when we talk about who is responsible for implementing, for example, marine protected areas in the high seas, and I'll come back to that shortly. Where we're at, we've had the third of the intergovernmental conferences, um, and actually the last meeting was the first time we had draft text to negotiate. Um, And as you recall, the General Assembly authorised four sessions. Um, And so officially, states are saying that we're going to have a treaty by the end of April, at the end of the fourth IGC, but as you will see in a moment, personally, I think that is unlikely. And that we may need further sessions which haven't yet been authorized by the General Assembly. And we're expecting a new draft um, any minute, actually. So um, th- what I want to do now is just talk you through some of the key issues underpinning the four elements of the package. Um, first of all, marine genetic resources, a um, relatively complex topic for those who aren't familiar with um, marine genetic resources. this topic came about because of the growth in marine biotechnology um, and its role in developing important industrial applications, including cancer drugs and other and other pharmaceuticals. Most have been developed from marine organisms found within national jurisdiction. But uh, when the issue of BBNJ came up, the developing countries drew attention to the fact that there's nothing in the Law of the Sea Convention on its face that expressly deals with the marine genetic resources of the deep seabed. So under the Law of the Sea Convention, the freedom of the high seas covers fishing, um, which could potentially include catching living organisms for biotechnology purposes. Then on the, in the area, which is the deep seabed, the principle of the common heritage of mankind applies, and a whole regime has been developed to ensure that the benefits of mining in the deep seabed will in part be shared by the international community. The convention expressly defines the resources of the area as mineral resources. And so, however, developing countries argued that when the idea of common heritage was developed in the General Assembly, it was intended to apply to everything on the deep seabed. Um, which is really hard to argue. Um, Personally, I think the best legal interpretation is that there is a gap. Um, You could potentially say that it needs to be filled by the freedom of the high seas, um, but I'm not sure that you can say necessarily that the agreement as it's read can be interpreted as applying common heritage to marine genetic resources. Nevertheless, this issue and this ideological debate between freedom of the high seas and common heritage of mankind has been a fundamental issue in the negotiations so far and continue to be a a major issue. Now, there's there's no acceptance. We've got an instruction from the General Assembly that we need to have a a legal framework for marine genetic resources. And there's been a lot of movement uh, on the part of developed countries who were initially hostile um, to anything other than freedom of the high seas. And we're now having discussions about benefit sharing, for example, What sort of benefit sharing can be derived? And and we're also now talking about marine genetic resources beyond national jurisdiction as a whole, including the high seas, as well as the deep seabed, which, from a practical perspective, makes complete sense. However, um, there are enormous problems still to be resolved. One issue is, what is a marine genetic resource for the purposes of this agreement? Does it only apply to... Uh, living organisms that you collect from areas beyond national jurisdiction? Or does it apply to when you access a genetic resource that's held in a lab somewhere? Even more controversial is what if you access digital information that's been derived from that genetic resource uh, and you don't even go near a physical specimen. Should that be covered by the treaty? There are questions about how these resources will be accessed and developed countries in particular are very um, opposed to strong access obligations, such as requiring a permit or something like that. Uh, but then they're more open to a system of notification. Um, and then probably possibly the core issue is how you would share the benefits. Developing countries want monetary benefits linked to intellectual property rights, which again raises problematic issues. Um, and uh, developed countries are really sort of saying, no, well, we should limit this to non-monetary benefit sharing, uh, such as building capacity of marine scientific programmes in developing countries and and allowing them to build their capability in relation to marine genetic resources. So the first element (coughs) of the package is probably one of the most crucial and probably the furthest from having negotiations. I I should also mention that The president in the draft text tried to avoid the common heritage of mankind, freedom of the high seas tension by omitting those two principles completely from the draft um, and instead focusing on the operational paragraphs um, and and processes. But that was really pushed back by the developing countries um, who said "It's, it's crucial to us that common heritage of mankind is in here as the governing principle that applies. Um, The second um, issue here is area-based management tools including marine protected areas. Um, I couldn't find a a map that showed only high seas marine protected areas. Uh, This one says that marine protected areas cover about 6% of the ocean, but actually only about 1.2% is in the high seas. And of course there are all sorts of structural reasons why it's really difficult to get area-based management, especially marine protected areas, in areas beyond national jurisdiction, um, freedom of the high seas is the default principle, um, especially when you're dealing with resources. Uh, which means that states actively have to uh, opt into organisations that may be creating these sorts of um, sorts of processes. And pacta tertia, of course, means that if you're not part uh, party to that organisation, you're not necessarily bound by their measures. Um, so you can have regional organisations like OSPAR, which is the uh, organisation for the North East Atlantic, and the Fishing there, uh, Commission there coordinating, and that's ach- happened and has achieved some marine protected areas. We've got uh, a very large marine protected area now in the Southern Ocean um, that was established by the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, um, but they're really struggling to get any more because there's a resistance from, um, particularly the, high, the fishing uh, countries, who are reluctant to set too many precedents about marine protected areas. So, how do we ensure that the BBNJ treaty can progress the creation of marine protected areas? Um, well, there is a process that's emerging in the draft text, and it seems that there will be a conference of the parties for the BBNJ who will uh, receive proposals and ideas from marine protected areas. But because of this requirement not to undermine, it raises real difficulties with how the BBJ COP is going to work with regional organisations to achieve the MPA. Most would agree that the BB&J Treaty will not be able to impose marine protected areas on organisations like fisheries organisations. But what if that organisation... Refuses to, to to respond and to implement marine protected areas or conservation measures themselves, and that's a real possibility. Given a lot of them rely on consensus decision making, and that's the problem for CAMLA in the Southern Ocean. So there's a lot of difficult process issues and relationship issues, I think, uh, that still have to be resolved in relation to the institutional processes environmental impact assessment is essentially a discussion about how to implement article 206 of the law of the sea convention Um, and essentially it's about clarifying the process um, for environmental impact assessment and there are two visions one is that the EIA process will um, will simply um, be a state-led process and, and it's just really setting out what they need to think about Whereas a number of countries want a more internationalised process, where the, any uh, scientific body for the BB&J will be involved, um, there might be even decision-making of some sort being done by the COP, which is being resisted. So there's a question there about, you know, to what extent will the international institution interact with these environmental impact assessments? Because I'm running a bit behind, I will move on to capacity building um, and. This is a, another key issue, particularly for developing countries. Um, they really feel that the developing um, the capacity building and t- transfer of marine technology provisions in UNCLOS have not been implemented by the international community. And they also argue that they need capacity building to be able to implement the provisions of the BBNJ. Um, so it's, it, it, I guess it comes down to that classic problem Everyone realises that capacity building needs to be done, but how to achieve that? And the, the arguments are between mandatory and voluntary capacity building, so essentially charging the developed countries who are parties to the treaty, transferring that to um, developing countries, or and also whether even monetary um, capacity building is required and, and it could be in-kind or non-monetary um And it seems that there might be a link that can be made with marine genetic resources where benefit sharing there might be linked to capacity building as well. But there's still some fundamental issues. So that's the the four elements of the package. Um, In the brief time that I have left, I want to just talk to you about uh, ambition and and optimism, I guess, that whether or not this treaty is going to be able to Uh, deal with some of those bigger picture issues that I mentioned at the beginning of this talk. And my concern, and the thing I'm worried about, is that the focus of the conversation in the IGCs has very much been focused on the content of the four elements of the package. But when you think about the issues that face conservation and sustainable use of marine biodiversity, you have to think that there are other things out there that are important... For marine biodiversity, and so when I talk about the need for an ambitious treaty, I really mean a treaty that is going to be to be able to that's going to contain the tools and the institutional frameworks that can respond to new issues or changes in circumstance and and so forth. So that's essentially what I'm going to just uh, talk about for the for the last few slides. Now, I do have to start off uh, with a caveat because. International academics are often criticised for being utopist, um, along you know, in, the, in the way that um, Kunz talked about and saying that we, we all want the perfect treaty. And of course, in reality, you have to realise that political will is going to govern how many states are going to sign up to a treaty. And the more ambitious the treaty, the fewer parties potentially will sign up. And this is not a scientific chart, but what it, it's trying to show you is that the, um, the the lower the ambition, the higher more countries you are likely to get. Um, for example, the CBD um, is a good example of that. Um, but if you try and have it too ambitious, that's going to put states off and they're not going to sign up. And that's a real problem, because in the high seas, where the default position is freedom, um, then you could then have some parties that are uh, obligated by certain obligations and other parties that aren't. So it comes back to the pacta tertius problem and so forth. So essentially what we need in in any sort of international negotiation, particularly one on the environment, is trying to find the the point at which um, you you maximize ambition while also ensuring that the key participants uh, can be part of the treaty. At the moment, the president of the conference, um, Ambassador Rena Lee, is very much emphasizing the need to bring all states along. And that I think has underpinned the reason why process has been very slow so far in the negotiations. But I think at some point we need to acknowledge that there are some states who are part of the negotiations who just don't want anything to happen, and they are delaying Uh, Without saying that, um, they're quite happy for the status quo to continue uh, without a treaty. So we need to find the right right, um, space. So as I said, um, the four elements uh, are important because they were a political compromise to ensure that all elements um, that were important to various state parties were included in the negotiations. Um, but as I said, the issue has, has been that the four elements have really narrowed and um, I was at uh, the European Society of International Law meeting and, um, and Nalufa Aral from Turkey said, are we going to need another treaty for plastics, are we going to need another treaty for ocean geoengineering and that kind of, my heart sank at that point because The the difficulties in getting these international negotiations done are hard, and that's even in a case where states are interested in multilateral uh, discussions, which I can't say is um, necessarily the the mood at the moment in the international community. So what that raises for me is issues of how this treaty might be used beyond the four elements of the package uh, in future. And it seems to me there are a number of ways in which the BBNJ could be structured uh, to achieve that, and some of these are starting to look like they are happening, but there's still pushback on some of them. First, there should be general obligations to conserve marine, uh, and sustainably use marine biodiversity, and at the moment, actually, there aren't, there isn't a, a clear general statement of principle um, in terms of obligations in the draft treaty. So, hopefully, that will change. But if we can have a you know, not just a repetition of the obligations and the but sort of further obligations, I think that can be something that we can then hang um, development of the law in, in other contexts, not just the four elements of the package. We also need to have clear that general principles um, apply not just only to the four elements of the package, but to activities in areas beyond national jurisdiction, and here I'm talking about things like the precautionary approach, ecosystem-based management, and at the moment, um, the President has those within the four elements of the package rather than in a general principles section. Um, That has been pushed back. I think a lot of states felt that was uh, unacceptable, so hopefully that will change as well. As I mentioned, I think the institutional structures are going to be really important. Um, and the, for, for here, I kind of look to multilateral environmental agreements uh, where they, the COP can develop work programs under the framework of the treaty because it's connected to the purpose, object and purpose of the treaty. Um, and so when we were discussing the COP provisions, there were a couple of uh, delegations who sort of said, well, the COP can raise any other issues as long as it's connected to the elements of the package. And others were saying, no, it should be more broadly connected to the objective of the agreement. So how the COP is empowered is going to be quite important. And there's been no suggestion formally that there should be the ability to create a protocol under this agreement. But it's very common in um, environmental agreements. And so I think it makes sense that this should appear. However, you run into the scepticism of countries like the United States who think that everything is a a plot to rewrite the Law of the Sea Convention. So that can be um, seen as a problem. Um, And the other issue of course is the not undermine. And this is also going to have an impact on how ambitious the agreement can be. And it seems to me that at the moment there's a spectrum of views so if uh, it, one of these bodies exists um, and has a mandate, then the COP can't take decisions on the matter. So they have to leave it to that organisation to deal with. At the other end, the COP would have the power to make decisions or um, try and move things forward um, in a complementary way to the regional organisations. And obviously I think that is important for those organisations that aren't acting effectively effectively Uh, at Biodiversity Convention at the moment. And there's also a push to have an obligation for states that are party to the BBNJ to um, take up the issue of of biodiversity within the other organisations that they're party to um, to try and ensure that that's reflected in their mandate and operation. Um, I'll just quote here from uh, a recent uh, comment it's more useful to think of terms of, in terms of complementarity and compatibility rather than trying to sort of de- geographically put rings around certain um, organisations. Uh, I thought this was obvious, um, but at a meeting in Hamburg uh, about a month ago, uh, President Lee was there and she responded to a question from the floor about what's the role of this agreement in managing fish. And she said that she thought that the trend of state parties was to exclude fish caught as a commodity from the convention as a whole, from the scope of the agreement, and that is potentially part of how you can interpret the um, the agreement. So this is the draft. Um, this is in the NGR section, and and I think most were thinking of this as a as an issue about how to exclude, you know, fish stocks caught for consumption from being covered by the NGR provisions. But she seems to think that actually we should be excluding fish as a, as a commodity from the Convention as a whole, which, if you read that conservatively, could be mean that we can't talk about fisheries um, under this new agreement, which would be, in my view, um, inappropriate. So I'm going to rush through another issue that I was going to talk about and just conclude, so we've got some time for discussion. Um, so, Am I optimistic or pessimistic? Well, I think there are reasons for optimism. We haven't um, ruled anything out yet. We're still in the process of negotiation. But what I think is really important, and this is a term that's starting to to circulate among the delegates, is the idea that this this agreement should be future-proofed. That rather than creating another UNCLOS, which is is out of date to several decades after it came into effect, we need to create an, a, a, a living framework that is able to take on new challenges and develop um, as, as things go along. And it's important that the not undermining is not read in a narrow way so that um, there is scope for the bb COP, COP for parties, to engage in a range of different issues on marine biodiversity. Um, so I guess it's really still in the hands of states, and I should have said right at the very beginning of my talk, um, of course, I am on the New Zealand delegation, but um, I'm here in my personal capacity. Um, so my, my, my message is, um, yes, it's important to have as full participation as possible, but we still need to have a, a treaty that's effective and that's going to serve uh, to respond to the issues that I started with. So thank you very much for your attention. Down this yeah